Amen. Well, good morning, church. How are y'all? Good, good, good. Well, welcome to week four, where we are wrapping up the story of Jonah. And uh, each week, the last three weeks, we've been going through one chapter. This week, we're looking at the final chapter, and we're looking at the chapter uh, which Pastor Tim Keller says is the most overlooked and the most unexpected final chapter of any book in the Bible. Because this is a chapter that doesn't make it in most children's Bibles. This is a chapter that kind of uh, muddies up how we see Jonah. And this is a chapter that, you know, like we want to, like a bow on things. We want everything to kind of resolve at the end and have a feel-good good story. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really do any of that. But we're going to look at it together and see what God wants to, to say through his word. And as we do that, I want to I recap kind of where we've been in Jonah's story, because you might be joining us for the first time. Maybe you missed a week. Maybe, maybe you just logged on online. Welcome. And uh, I'm happy to do a recap, but I am wondering, I have a microphone. Would anybody like to give a recap of Jonah's story so far? Does anybody think they could kind of catch us up on where Jonah has been? And I'll, I'll be happy to fill in any gaps along the way. Anybody willing to come up here? And, and recap Jonah's story? Marlene? Anybody? Can you do it? Marlene, come on. Come on. All right, let's give Marlene a round of applause. This isn't a setup. This is not a setup. It's actually this morning she was asking me all these tough questions about Jonah before the sermon. So I knew that she had read it. So Marlene, tell us Jonah's story up to this point as best you can. Okay, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and give them a message of um, redemption, of uh, let them know what God was going to do, uh, but that, you know, get them to repent. Jonah, being a very good prophet, went the opposite way of Nineveh. Uh, a big storm came up on the boat that he was in. Uh, everybody was praying, except Jonah. So, to calm the storm, Jonah asked the other um, fishermen to go ahead and throw him overboard, which they did. But God had prepared a big fish that swallowed Jonah. Why it took Jonah three days in the belly of the fish to pray to God, I don't know. I guess that just means he was very stubborn. But he finally prayed. <laughs> And God had the fish deposit him on the shore, and he goes to Nineveh, and he tells them, 40 days, and you will be toast. <laughs> All right. Good job. Let's give a round of applause. So, yeah, so last week we talked about how Jonah got a second chance. He went to the city. He proclaimed 40 days and the city will be overturned and a miracle happened. This short sermon that Jonah gave that God told him to give uh, was effective and the people of Nineveh repented and God gave them a second chance. God relented and their city was overturned and it was overturned for the good. And so like this, I mean, I, I don't know, like this for me, like this is like the dream of every preacher. This is a revival of a nation. I mean, things are pretty amazing at this point as Jonah's been given a second chance, as the, the people of Nineveh have been given a second chance. And so here at this moment of transformation and redemption, we come to the beginning of chapter four. 
And so I want to read it together with you. So Jonah chapter 4, after the whole city repents. To Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a little shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Because Jonah here, he's, he's hoping maybe, you know, after 40 days, maybe the people had like fake repentance. Maybe they're going to go back to their old ways. And he's sitting there under this shade hoping God will just destroy these people. He's so mad. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And so he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell the right hand from their left? And should I not have concern for this city where there are also many animals? The end. Okay, I told you. It's, it's kind of an odd ending. This is the end of, of Jonah's story. We kind of find him here, not exactly in a place that, that we expected. I mean, because last week we, we found like there was this great miracle. There's this great stuff happening. Jonah had, had achieved every preacher's dream and so we expect him bowing down and thanksgiving to God and and thanking God for this mission and going back home and and being with his family I mean that's kind of how I would have written it I would have probably just stopped it at the end of chapter three honestly but here as we come to chapter four we get this kind of odd ending as we see what's happening as these people have repented as they've listened to God's word through Jonah and, and we see that he's not happy he's not thrilled he is angry he is hot. He is angry. And I don't know if you know this. Did you know that, um, did you know that adults can throw temper tantrums? Did y'all know? Y'all are church people. You knew that. You knew that. Adults can throw temper tantrums. And when I read this, like, it kind of sounds like Jonah's having a bit of a temper tantrum, isn't it? I mean, he, he's stomping around. And he's like, I'm angry. I knew you were going to do this. Just like a little kid. Like, I knew it. I knew it. God, I'm so angry, I wish I would die. And then he says, yeah, I knew you would do it and you did it. I was right. He's, he's just stomping around, angry. He is so angry, he's so hot, 
And, 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 and we see why he is so mad. I mean, he makes it clear. He, he says this. He said, I knew. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew that you're a God who relents from sending calamity. Right, Jonah, he knew God's character and the implications of it made him angry. He knew God's nature and that made him mad. And here at the end of, of Jonah's story in chapter 4, we, we finally get like the, the real in-depth answer of why in chapter 1 he ran. And he fled the original mission trip that God gave him. And we learn it wasn't simply because he was afraid of being killed by his enemies as he was sent to, to people who, who hated his people and he hated them. Like we find he wasn't just worried about his life or he didn't just want to go on another exotic uh, trip to a different missionary city. You know, maybe he wanted to go on a mission trip to, to Myrtle Beach or maybe he wanted to go to Gatlinburg. Like, you know, we, we know, but now we know really why he ran. And it's because he knew that if he proclaimed this word of judgment and mercy and these people repented, his enemies, he knew, he knew what God was like. And he knew that God would forgive them and that God would be gracious to them. And that made him furious. It made him furious. It made him furious because, you know, What's happening here with Jonah is he wanted God's grace and mercy for himself. And we see that throughout the story. I mean, Marlene said it. Like, like when, when he was swallowed by that well, we talked about how that was an act of grace by God, God. God saving his life when he should have just drowned. And then God gave him a second chance to go and complete the mission again. Like Jonah had been a recipient of God's grace and God's mercy. And he was so happy to receive it in his own life but he didn't want it extended to his enemies. He didn't want God's grace extended to the people he didn't like. The people he wanted God to judge and destroy. And so at a level, we, we see here in this final chapter that Jonah wanted to be, maybe we could think of it like this, a gatekeeper of God's grace. He wanted to say who's in and who's out. And here, God is, is basically trying to tell him in this final chapter, Jonah, I'm bigger than you imagine. My grace is wider than you imagine, and I care about all people. I care about all people. And this is where this, like, honestly, to me, it's the weirdest part of the book. This weird object lesson comes in with this plant, Okay. There's this weird thing that takes place as God's trying to illustrate his love for all people and Jonah goes to the edge of the city. Jonah is hot. He's in a hot place. He builds himself a little booth, but it's not quite shady enough. And so God sends this plant to grow rapidly like a gourd or a castor oil plant. Scholars aren't sure. So this plant grows up rapidly. It gives him shade and he's so happy to just finally be in the shade and rest. He's like, you know, it's kind of like he's put himself in timeout after his temper tantrum and he's finally cooling down a little bit. He's kind of happy and he's waiting. He's waiting. He's hoping God is going to destroy his enemies. And then this weird thing happens. I mean, here God sends this worm to eat the plant. 
Then the plant kind of withers and dies. So then Jonah is sitting at the edge of the city. He's already kind of angry, and now he is hot. He's in the sweltering heat, and now he's just angry again. He's angry again, and so he and God have this little conversation, and, and Jonah's mad. He's angry about this plant now. He's angry about this plant that God destroyed. And, and in this moment, in the closing moments of the book, God basically says to him, Jonah, you are so angry that I destroyed this plant. This plant that you didn't, you didn't plant, you didn't help it grow, you didn't water it. You didn't have anything to do with it. You're so angry I destroyed this plant, and yet you would be happy if I destroyed your enemies, the Ninevites. And he basically says to Jonah, shouldn't you be more concerned with people than with plants? Because God's telling him in this moment that that's where his heart is. His heart is for people, people like the Ninevites, who don't always even know the evil they're doing. And so in this, this final moment of the book, he's kind of telling Jonah, hey, Jonah, check your heart. Check your heart, Jonah. And I, I think the closing of the story where it doesn't, it doesn't really wrap up for us, I think one of the things it's meant to do is to kind of get us to check our hearts as well. Because I'm this way, maybe you're, you're like this way a little bit, but like at times I can be, I can be like Jonah. We've seen throughout a story, at times he, he, he's disobedient, at times he's obedient. At times he seems to get it, and then at other times he doesn't seem to get it. And here, I, I, I'm sometimes like Jonah too. Like, I'm happy to be a recipient of God's grace for myself. I want his mercy for myself. I want it for my family members. I want it for my friends. But when it comes to my enemies, when it comes to people I don't really like, people who are really different than me, Sometimes I'm like Jonah, I'm, I'm happy for God to withhold his grace from them. Sometimes I, I like to build little gates around God's grace as well. And I think at level, a lot of us are that way. I, I used to serve a church that had a food pantry every week. So every Saturday, people could come to the church, and we'd give them a box of food, enough for a week and then they could come back the next week. And, and different food pantries operate differently. Ours didn't ask for any kind of income statement or proof of need. You just had to know, like, who you were and, like, the number of people in your family. And it was an awesome time serving each weekend. And, and one of the things that would inevitably happen is there would be a new volunteer, and they would come up to me, and they'd pull me to the side, and they'd say, Pastor Jonathan, I, I, gotta, I have a concern. So I said, well, what's going on? And they said, I don't, do you know that family that just came in? I'm like, yeah. They would say, I, I don't know that we should be giving them food. And I would say, why? What, what's going on? What, what happened? And they would say, they're driving a Mercedes. And then somebody else would come to me, and they always whispered, right? Somebody else would come, and they'd say, Pastor Jonathan, I have some concerns. This family, this family told us they had four kids, but I only see two car seats in the car. I don't think we should give them food for four people. Somebody else would say, 
Pastor, I know this person has a job. I know they have a job and they come here week after week. I don't know that they really need or deserve this food. It could go to somebody else. And whenever we'd have these conversations, I, I would listen. I would listen and then I would usually respond by reminding them of two things. Number one, the reason why we have this food pantry, it's, it's because Jesus calls us to feed the hungry. That's what he says. And he says when we feed hungry people, it's like we're feeding him. And Jesus cares about people's souls and Jesus cares about people's bodies. So I would remind them of that while we were there. But then the second thing I would remind them of is that the reason why at our food pantry, different pantries are different, at our food pantry, we didn't ask for a proof of need or anything like that is because this food was meant to be a sign and a symbol of God's free grace for people. Grace that doesn't have strings attached, that isn't based on whether people have earned it or deserve it. And so I would say that's why we give people this food without questions asked. It doesn't matter what car they drive. It doesn't matter whether they look like they need it or not. It doesn't matter whether they're even lying to us. We're giving this food as a sign and a symbol of of God's grace. And usually after these conversations, I would feel, you know, I'd feel a little self-righteous, like I get it. And these new volunteers don't yet, but one day they'll be spiritually mature. And then, of course, I begin to think about how in my life I, I do that to people. About how I think, you know, like, oh yeah, I want everybody to know Jesus. But then I think, well, but I don't know that I want that person who's hurt me really bad. I don't know that I want them sitting next to me in church. Or I think about, you know, I know we're called to love everybody, but, you know, this person, I, I know they've, they've tried to manipulate me. They've lied about me. They've done bad things to me. Like, I, I don't know about them. Like, I'm happy for God's grace for me, but I don't know that they've really deserved it. Or it's like, I, I know what people have done. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know if God should forgive them. I don't know. I don't know that I want them sitting next to me, worshiping next to me. I mean, maybe you, you can think about this in your own life. I mean, maybe you can think about it this way. Like imagine, imagine we're, we're, we're singing in worship and we're just praising God, having a moment, and then you open up your eyes and they're next to you worshiping with their, their hands raised and abandoned. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Would you be happy they were here in our midst worshiping God with us? <laughs> or, or imagine this, imagine former President Trump and former President, Vice President Mike Pence, like at the end of the service, we invite people for prayer. They come and they kneel. And they're kneeling, praying. Would you, would you be happy? Would you question their motivations? Or would you praise God that that people who maybe you consider your enemies or you feel like are very different than you, maybe you'd be happy that they were in the house of the Lord worshiping. Or th think of it this way, I mean, more personal. I mean, maybe like you're a student right now, maybe, maybe you've been bullied. Like that person who bullies you, they, they walk into church and they want to know all about Jesus and his grace. Or the person who, who's hurt you in the past, someone you've had a hard time 
forgiving. You learn that they, they've repented and they've turned their life around. Are you happy? Or when they walk into church, you're a little discomforted, a little perturbed, maybe a little angry like we see Jonah being. Angry that God might give his grace to them as well. I once heard someone say this, that a lot of times we don't want people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ because if they did, we'd have to train, change the way we treated them and saw them. That if people we, we believe are our enemies or we believe are different or they just, I don't know, they, they just shouldn't be a part. Like if they, if they repent and believe, they, their identity becomes brothers and sisters in Christ and we have to admit that we are all adopted into one family together. Or, or we realize, you know what, now they are an integral part of the body of Christ and they have gifts. They have spiritual gifts that are needed just like our spiritual gifts. Or maybe we'd realize like, okay, if, if this person repents and believes and, and they receive God's grace into their lives like the Ninevites in this story, we'd realize, you know what, if, if they receive God's grace, then we're going to have to get used to the fact that we're going to be worshiping in eternity with them forever. And that can make us kind of uncomfortable, can it? So I think one of the things that that this final chapter is trying to teach us is that, that some of the people we don't really want sitting next to us in church are going to be worshiping next to us in heaven for all eternity. Some of the people we don't want worshiping next to us in church are going to be worshiping alongside of us in heaven for all eternity. And the question is why? And the answer is the same reason you're going to be there. Because of God and who God is, and what God has done. And as Jonah proclaims in Jonah chapter 2, when he seems to get a little bit more, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And so if you go back and you look at, look at what Jonah declares about God, listen again to what he says. He says, God, you are gracious. That is, God doesn't treat us how we deserve to be treated. He gives us what we don't deserve. He, he is gracious to us. Jonah says this, God, you are compassionate. He's so angry about it. He's saying, God, your heart, your heart moves towards people and you desire all of us to be rescued. He says, God, you are slow to anger. And Jonah should be grateful for this one that God is slow to be angry because Jonah Jonah has required some patience. And he says, God, you are abounding in love. And I don't like it. He proclaims the truth. God's love is unconditional. It's extravagant. It's, it's reckless. He says, God, you are one who relents from sending calamity. Here's the thing. Jonah clearly knows. He has good theology in his head, doesn't he? Jonah has good theology in his head, but it's, it's like there's still a little room in his heart for God's grace to go deeper. There's still a little room for him to be transformed. 
And I think the truth is for all of us that we all have a little bit more room in our hearts as well. That we all have a little more room, a little more space, a little more areas in our lives where God wants and needs to continue to work in our hearts. And so this morning, I just want to simply ask you to, to think, who, who in your life, who in your life are those people that you kind of view as the Ninevites? Who are those people that you kind of see as your, your enemies or people who, who oppose you? Maybe people who, who are a threat to you or who have hurt you. Maybe who are those people you feel like are beyond the reach of God's grace? And if you could maybe build the little gate, you'd maybe just say, you, you stay on out. I want, you, I want you to really think about that. Who are those people in your life? Ponder on that question. And then I want to invite you this morning to pray. I want you to invite, invite you to pray. One, pray for them. And, and two, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and give you God's compassion, God's grace, God's love for people who are different than you. Because here's the truth is that, that we can't do this on our own. We can't love people who are our enemies on our own. We can't love people who've hurt us on our own. We can't love people who are that different than us on our own. We need the Holy Spirit at work within us, transforming us from the inside out to do these things. But the good news of the gospel is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and makes a home in your heart. And the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. And the Holy Spirit can give you the power and transform you so that you can love these kinds of people. You can live and love like Jesus. And if you think about Jesus' life, Jesus was full of grace. He was full of truth. He was full of compassion. He was full of mercy. Jesus, when he walked around this earth, he, he wasn't putting up little gates and building all this kind of stuff. No, he was reaching across divides. He was sharing love with his enemies. He was going to those who were different. He was reaching out to those who were outcasts. And when he was on the cross... Do you remember what some of his final words were? Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. He offered mercy and grace to the people who were literally killing him in his final moments. And we can't do this on our own, but, but as the power of the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus in his ministry works in us. The Holy Spirit will empower us to love and to live out the teachings, teachings like this one that Jesus gives us, where Jesus says this, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Can you imagine if we began living this out as a church? I mean, if we began living out the commission that God has given us, just like he commissioned Jonah, he commissioned, commissions us to go to all people in all places 
and to proclaim the word of God to them. I mean, can you imagine if we began doing that in our community and our community began coming into the church and, and, and people who are different than us and who look different and voted different and believe differently, like they were all coming here. I mean, can you imagine if when people stepped foot in our church, they looked around and they were like, this is a weird group of people in this room. Because we got old people, young people. We got people of all different races. We got, we got people like the world says, y'all should be like fighting in here. But y'all look all different. But y'all are somehow here in this room together. I mean, can you imagine if the only explanation that made sense was Jesus Christ? People said the only thing that makes sense of how you can be together in a divided world is Jesus I mean, can you imagine what that would, would be like as a witness in our community? I mean, I can imagine what it would be like because that, ultimately that's what the early church was like. When the Holy Spirit filled the church on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit sent the church out, people began to go out to the Gentiles. For a long time there was kind of a gate and it was like, okay, they're, they're out, we're in, but they began jumping the fence and sharing God's grace with them and the Gentiles became part of the family of God. And then they began to go to their Samaritans, to the Samaritans who were their political enemies, who, who were, were religiously very different than them. They had been fighting. They had had all these wars over the years. They began sharing God's grace with these people. And the Samaritans believed. And they became part of the family of God. And the early church, they, they, went, they went to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the, to the pagans, to the uneducated, to the educated, to the rich and to the poor. They went to, to people with all different backgrounds. And as these people heard the good news and they repented and believed, the world began to change. And in the book of Acts, we read that the Holy Spirit through the church turned the world upside down. Just like God did Nineveh. Turned it upside down down and nothing has been the same since. And, and today on World Communion Sunday, the first Sunday in October, around the world right now, millions and millions of Christians are gathering together in different places. And they're singing songs. They're opening up God's word and reading it together. They're praying for one another. They're confessing their sins. They've gathered around the Lord's table together. And if you took a little snapshot of all the different Christian communities around the world, you would see how vastly different we all are. But you'd also see that there is one thing that brings us together across everything else that divides us, and that is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, after our closing song, the kids are going to come in and we're going we're gonna to share in Holy Communion together. And as we do that, as we come to the Lord's table, we remember that, that we come to this table not because we've earned our place or we deserve a place. We simply come because Christ our Lord has invited us. And He's inviting all people. And as we come to the table, we... We remember that everyone who, who repents of their sin, who seeks to follow Jesus and live at peace with one another, everyone is welcome here at the table. And as we share in this, this meal, we remember that 
this bread and this cup, these are signs and symbols of God's free grace that's given to each of us. Not because we've earned it or we deserve it, but because of who he is and because of what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. And so this morning during our closing song, I want to invite you to, to search your heart, to invite the Holy Spirit to fill you again, to transform you. I want to invite you to, to sing, and our, our kids are going to be coming in, so if you have kids, look for them, and then we'll give further instructions once we're prepared and ready to receive. And so we ask this morning, Lord, would you search our hearts? Would you give us the humility to confess the ways that we've sinned against you, sinned against others, and the ways that we, we've hated other people? The ways we've been angry at other people and the way that you extend your mercy even to them. God, would you search our hearts? Would you prepare us to share in this meal together? And would you meet us? In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.